Welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we have a special treat for our listeners today. We're doing an interview with Doug Lensing. Doug is a Navy veteran and St. John's grad. So uh, welcome to the show, Doug. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brian. Uh, so we just wanted to talk to Doug today just because, you know, Doug's kind of our target demographic. Doug was in the Navy and then for some wild reason decided to join St. John's. So, Doug, let's start with, you know, why, what, what brought you to join the Navy? What was the impetus behind that? Yeah, um, after I graduated from an undergraduate school in Memphis called Rhodes College, I uh, started working in an uh, investment bank as a bond portfolio analyst for uh, institutional clients, so bigger clients. And uh, I did that for almost two years. And while it was exciting at times, I think um, I felt like I wanted sort of, uh, I couldn't envision myself doing that forever. And I wanted to see if there was more to life than what I was doing then. Um, so I decided to join the Navy and I had, maybe my eyes are a little bit bigger than my stomach, but I, I, deci- I decided to uh, sign what they called at the time a seal challenge contract. So oh, yeah. it guaranteed me, <laughs> it guaranteed me as an enlistee to, to go to bud. And, uh, and so I did, and I was, you know, you hear a lot of stories about how, uh, folks, you know, who end up making it through buds and do these great things as Navy seals. <laughs> you don't hear terribly too many stories about people who don't make it to, through buds and what happens to them. But what, what happened to me at least is, uh, you get recycled into, uh, and they show you several jobs that are available to you. And one of them was, uh, was, uh, being a linguist. Um, so that's the job that I took and I went to, to DLI and, um, became a Farsi linguist. Right on. And then, so how long, so then you were doing linguist stuff in the signals intelligence field after that? That's right. Yeah. So, I was in the Navy for six years, um, and after DLI, I was uh, uh, transferred to Fort Gordon in uh, Augusta, and uh, was there for four years. Um, and uh, during that time, and I think I think you know, I was wondering a lot about uh, the kind of work I was doing. I really loved the work I was doing, and I could see the impact it had, you know, in the battle space, and especially, you know. Uh, with force protection on the Navy side. Um, but uh, I still think I had a kind of, uh, I don't know, deep desire to, to, to take back up something I started when I was at school in Memphis at, at Rhodes. I mean, when, in my junior year, I took a class on political philosophy, read The Prince, you know, and re- read from Machiavelli, through Nietzsche. And I think, you know, that sort of piqued an interest and for the first time made me aware that, 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 uh, the kind of world or cave you might say that I lived in, uh, well, was subject to question in a lot of ways. I mean, that, 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 um, moment, I'd say an undergrad sort of launched me down sort of a path and thought that was always with me throughout my time in the military. And as I got more settled into my job in Georgia um, and having a little bit more free time, as you, I think you and I've talked about before, a lot of time, 
in the military, you know, you find yourself sort of not having tons of stuff to do on your off time. So I occupied that free time with, uh, with reading, you know? Yeah. I don't know what that's yeah. like at all. I mean, I was in Campbell's in North Carolina, which I mean, as everyone knows, is just a hot spot of social activity and, uh, you know, <laughs> super fun, a place to be. Um, so you're, you're hanging out at Fort Gordon and you're, you're reading, you're inspired by uh, this political philosophy course. And then how did St. John's kind of hit your radar? Well, I think during a, um, a time when I was, uh, reading most seriously, I, um, I remembered a friend of mine telling me about this school from undergrad that they applied there and that it was a school where you only studied great books. You only studied, um, there was only one curriculum and, you know, you only studied, uh, philosophy or at least the philosophy of the various subjects in college, uh, seriously and deeply, um, starting with the Greeks and reading all the way through to contemporary, you know, almost to, through to contemporary philosophy. Um, and so I looked to see if there was any sort of summer programs or anything like that that they had. And I found that uh, there's this thing called summer classics that they still do. And I took leave for a week to do it. So summer classics are like a uh, outside of the curriculum program for people who are interested in St. John. So you pay some large amount of money to, <laughs> to go uh, sit uh, for a week and have a discussion about one particular book. Um, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a ridiculous amount of money, but at the time I thought it was. Sure. But when I went there, I think I, think, uh, I had, uh, as one of my tutors, uh, the, uh, Miss Van Boxel, who is on this podcast, um, there we were reading Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And I, another tutor was Mr. Carl, uh, who was the dean of the graduate program at the time. Um, so during the course of that week, I just thought I had found the place where I needed to be to study the kind of questions that, that uh, I came across both just in thought and practical everyday life with my job. And uh, the more I was there talking with both of them about how, uh, how I, as a person who's already graduated from undergrad, could find a way um, to come study there, you know, of course, I learned t- more about the graduate program and, uh, and uh, decided to apply. It happened to turn out that when I went to that summer classics, I had um, basically one more year left on my active duty contract. So uh, I finished out the next year and started uh, in fall of uh, 2016 in the graduate program. Okay. So your, your, you know, undergrad, what was your undergrad degree in? Political science. Okay. So you're a political science guy. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think uh, when I was studying political science, I wanted to study it as a, a, you know, for practical purposes, to be involved in politics in some way. Um, and then when I took political philosophy, I think I, that desire was significantly moderated because I didn't think I had an answer to the question of why I wanted to be in politics at all. And I think that same problem emerged for, for me while I was in the military. You know, I wanted to be in the military because, you know, there's a lot of activity, there's action, you get to, you get to, uh, and of course they're mixed with long, long periods of boredom too. (laughs) Um, but, uh, nonetheless, I still couldn't fully give an account of why I thought military, the military life or military service was, uh, was good for me. Uh, and insofar as those questions, uh, at different points in my life were unanswered, 
I thought maybe if I went to a place where I could study uh, the kind of books that uh, were what I, was what I, were what I was reading when this problem first emerged for me, then I could probably get an answer of the question, how do I live a good life or what is a good life? You know? I mean, maybe that is, you know, I, I, I and we floated this on the Ann Kangensdorf uh, interview, um, which for the listeners, uh, Doug and I have talked about this offline, but, you know, for the listeners, also Navy SIGINT, um, but, but actually was St. John, uh, St. John's grad and then went into the Navy uh, as a SIGINT linguist. Um, that, that idea of how to live a good life is, is interesting, right? Because when, when Ann and I were talking about that, that came up kind of tangentially, but it was more about trying to figure out what was difficult, you know, something, something that was harder than, you know, a, a, a quote unquote normal existence, you know? Uh, and you know, you, you, you decided to take a contract as a seal, right? Which is one of the hardest things that you can do in the military. But it's interesting to me that rather than going in that direction and saying, I wanted to do something difficult, you were really trying to figure out how to live the best life. So, you know, talk me through that and kind of the decisions you made about the military and about St. John's a little bit more. Like, what do you yeah. mean by living the best life? Well, I think I, you know, I think at a, a certain point, you know, when I first graduated and I went into investment banking, I thought the best life might come to me if I had enough money that I, I could, I could have enough money to purchase the kind of goods I would need to give me the freedom I need to, to, uh, to exp- you know, either live the best life. It might just, it might just spontaneously emerge once you have enough money or, or you would be free enough to find, find out what it is. But I think, I think I saw in that, in that, um, experience, uh, that the pursuit of money, even though it might at the outset have, uh, uh, a, a sort of good or happy ending as its end, or, or goal, uh, one can become easily corrupted by it uh, during uh, the process of trying to attain that uh, goal. So that's that was what spurred me to the mili- to, to consider the military. And I thought, you know, if uh, <laughs> if money isn't uh, going to be the answer for me, then maybe it's going to be a kind of um, activity where I can, I can be the best at something and be the best at what is essentially, um, you know, the most dangerous thing that a, that a human being can do, which is, I think, fight in a war. And uh, um, I just realized in the process of that, that, that either I was not sort of mentally strong enough to, to do that, or maybe that wasn't, uh, the answer for me for what the best life was. And each, even when I was at Buzz, I mean, I remember, so they, they have this process when you're, when you're uh, not good at something, I kept failing, failing things on the obstacle course that you have to stand these fire watches all night long. And so when I was sitting at a fire watch in San Diego, I was just reading Aristotle, trying to, you know, sort of think more deeply about uh, how it is that, uh, what it is that it, it is uh, a good life for a human being. And I think during that process, I started to see, you know, I didn't even know what a human being actually was. Um, 
so I don't know. I mean, I, I, throughout those kinds of things stayed with me. Um, those two questions, I think, essentially were with me in some form and maybe not fully uh, articulated in my own mind, but were there in a kind of passionate way for me that uh, I think, I don't know, drove me to, to continue to read, to think about these things more deeply. And then when, when um, I don't know, I had this thought to, to try and you know, study this more seriously once I got out of the military, I think I realized and was able to articulate what those questions were for me um, at St. John's, namely, you know, what is the human being and what is the best life for a human being? So you you figured that out then? Well, no, I don't think I have. <laughs> I've got a couple of answers. I've got, a, I've actually got, I've got a, uh, I've got a self-help uh, video program that you can subscribe to if you want. No. Okay. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I joke just because it's like, I mean, this, this sounds, it, it sounds very similar to, you know, Anne's interview to, to, to when I talk about why I go to St. John's is to try to answer these big questions. And then people go like, what are the answers? And I, I just say, uh, I'm working on it, but I, yeah, it's, well, it's I think it, go ahead. No, it's just, I was just going to say, I think it's, uh, everybody's approach to what they consider to be big questions is going to be slightly different. If, but, but, uh, the direction, I think if you pursue it in the way St. John's has you, uh, do it, um, could point you towards, um, a very few, a very small number of answers. Mm. So what, what are those few answers though? You're, we're, we're going to tease this out of you, Doug. We're going to, we're going to, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm playing my best Socrates and I'm going to midwife these answers out of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you, if you think, um, that, uh, on the one hand, um, that human beings, uh, by nature are political animals, because they have reason or speech, um, you know, as Aristotle says in, in uh, the politics, then there seems to be right there at the threshold of that book where that's mentioned, two possible ways, um, two major possible ways that human beings, primary ways that human beings can, can live. One of them seems to be, um, you know, you, because you have reason, you... Um, you political life um, is the best place or the city is the best place for you to be. It's, it's the most, it's natural in a sense because you um, get to use your reason and, and sort of exercise it in a way uh, that uh, deals with the most important human questions like justice um, or, you know, what's just and, or what's like advantageous or beneficial to me, you know? So, so it seems like there, uh, what would be a natural answer for human beings for the good life is to be in politics or to be, to be in a place where you're participating in government in some way. That's one answer, I think. What do you, what do you think about this? Well, I wanted to actually come back to, um, reading Aristotle at Bud's. Did you ever get caught reading Aristotle at Bud's during Firewatch? And what was the response of the people that <laughs> saw you doing it? 
No, I never got caught because I suspect that unless it was uh, uh, unless there was like some uh, surprise um, evolution that was taking place, then most of the instructors were sound asleep. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so I was just standing watch for no reason in a room that was not going to catch on fire. So um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so so I mean, I'm just I'm I'm just wondering if if you know it ever came up while you're in buds. You know, I worked for the SEALs for three years, um, you know, went to the Naval Academy and uh, my company officer, my plebe year was a SEAL, had a lot of kind of SEAL friends um, and, you know, super interesting cats, like super weird dudes. And I say that in a, in a mostly positive sense, um, the negative being their dedication to hair care. I, I, I'm astounded having, de- <laughs> having, having deployed with SEALs. My my running my running joke was like which which of these uh, which of these Connex boxes do you guys keep all your hair care products? Um, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just wondering, like you know, culturally, the, the seals seem to be made up of um, folks that don't fit in elsewhere. Um, so I'm wondering if you know how accepting they were, if if you just never brought it up, if you were just like I'm not, I am not mentioning that I read Aristotle in my spare time and I'm hiding these books so that nobody sees them. No, I think, I think they're probably more so than, than even in the uh, linguist community. Um, there is a real uh, necessity for what you do to be aligned with what you believe and what you think. And to that end, uh, I mean, because when you're out on the battlefield, you can't have this moment of an excess. You can't have an existential crisis like Achilles. Uh, yeah. the, uh, you, 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 uh, you have to fight. And, uh, to that end, when I was there, which was not very long, um, the, they actually had, there was these, there are two, two old master chiefs. I forgot their names now, uh, who, uh, for our, our whole big class at the time, it was like over 200 students at the very beginning. Uh, they would have these uh, uh, classes during the day, in which they're, they're, someone would get come up, one of them would come up and give a kind of talk about um, a section of uh, reading from either Marcus Aurelius or from uh, the United States Constitution or from even Aristotle. Um, and then there would be a kind of question and answer conversation taking a place taking place between the master chief and the students so i really thought that they 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 did a good job of recognizing that for people in that position there has to be a kind of harmony or unity between um your thoughts about things your beliefs about things and and uh, the actions that you're asked to do yeah i mean that in the linguist community that it's that's awesome to hear, especially in the more formalized training realm, right? Um, you know, I know my experience in Marine Corps varied a decent amount. You know, basic officers course had a decent dose of we're going to read some weird stuff and we're going to talk about it, we're going to challenge it. But I found that the longer I stayed in, the more kind of homogenous the education kind of was. I don't know if you experienced that in the linguist community or if it was mainly about, you know, improving your language skills. Was there, was there any of that once you actually got into the fleet? Yeah. I mean, that's a great, the way you put it, I think makes a lot of sense is that, you know, you kind of, 
I think the the training cadre for languages uh, in the enlisted community in the Navy is, is has a perennial struggle of trying to figure out how to to offer language training so people's scores don't drop and so people don't um, uh, don't just get the same thing every year. You know, I think people could could just stop caring about their language out of boredom if they had to take the same classes over and over again. But I mean, a lot of the times we did take the same classes over and over again, you know, for for annual training and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say um, in the linguist world, there's that definitely became um, a problem. Um, did you did you w w sort of when you were. Um, I don't know, at what point would you say that the kind of philosophical type of uh, education that you said you mentioned you, you might have gotten at the beginning in the Marine Corps. Uh, when did that start to drop out for you? Oh, command and staff. I mean, for me, it was much later. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, so I was, I was an instructor at the counterintelligence basic course of the Marine Corps. So I had, and, and I was doing that from 06 to 2013. And that was also the same mm -hmm. time I was going to St. John's. So as an officer and as an instructor role player, I could basically do whatever I wanted. And a lot of what I decided to talk to, um, you know, the CI Marines that I dealt with um, was, you know, a philosophical approach to what we do and why we do it. Um, mm -hmm. That wasn't directed. That wasn't part of the curriculum. It was just something that we did, but it, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't weird. You know, it was, it was a natural outgrowth of what a lot of the, instructor role players did i just had my spin on it which happened to include some great books but you know one of my best friends in the world uh was also an instructor role player down there and you know didn't actually had a political science background and um we talked about the same stuff he would just recommend different books <laughs> so um yeah. it wasn't that odd but i actually finished three semesters of st john's of the gi program for the listeners who don't know it's a four semester program so i had to take a little break because I had, you know, started a couple businesses, and um, I also needed to do command and staff college, uh, which is the field grade requirement for professional military education, and started that after doing three semesters at St. John's, and just was tearing my eyeballs out, um, mm. because the readings were incredibly boring, uh, repetitive, inaccurate, and contradicted themselves <laughs> and <laughs> the the attitude from a significant amount not everybody but from a significant amount of the people that were in there was cooperate and graduate and yeah I, I had never been good at that and then after going to St. John's had lost completely lost the ability to do so so you know notionally it's a seminar setting so you know the instructor talks a little bit and then starts asking questions and I jump right in and I go, well, this guy says this on page 13 and he says this on page 227 and those don't, you know, those don't mean the same thing. So I think this guy might be full of crap <laughs> and, <laughs> and that wasn't super welcome because it's just like, no, Brian, you're doing this wrong. We just have to demonstrate that we've read it and then we just need to agree with it. That's the only requirements to pass this class. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, a funny story, I might have told this on the pod before, but um, the first 
paper after we had to submit a paper at six and this is doug's podcast and doug's interview and here i am rambling about myself so <laughs> no, it's fine. We'll, we'll get off this uh soapbox here in a second but it's just a funny story because you know going to st john's writing you know a decent amount not a ton but a decent amount and i think the last paper that i had written uh before command and staff i think was like a 15 page paper on uh the marriage of figaro by mozart um, you know, super, super complicated stuff. I didn't, I didn't read music. I, you know, don't have a music background, but this is just what you do at St. John's. Right. Um, and I yeah. thought it turned out pretty good that my tutor, you know, said he liked it, you know, and we had to write like a five page paper, I think for command and staff. And I wrote it about Sun Tzu's the art of war and I got the lowest grade in the class. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I got, I got counseled by the Colonel great guy. Um, but it got counseled by the Colonel at the end of, or, you know, at the end of the paper submission thing. And, uh, you know, guess guy from Oklahoma, sweetheart of a guy, but he's like, Brian, what were you trying to do in this, uh, here paper? <laughs> and I was like, well, sir, not to sound too bougie, but I was just trying to like analyze what Sun Tzu was saying from a dialectical perspective and making sure that his four aspects of war actually, like complemented each other. And if one was missing, how would that affect things? If something else was missing, how would that affect things? Or did he accurately describe it? And was just trying to have a conversation with the author about that. And he's like, Brian, 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 <laughs> you're doing that <laughs> St. John's college thing, aren't you? He's <laughs> like, I need you to think more Oklahoma A&M. Uh, and I was just like, I, I can't, I can't do that. I don't have that ability. Um, yeah. So it was very, kind of frustrating um you know so i lasted 12 weeks and i I washed out i did that first six week block i did the next six week block the readings got even more uh pedantic and like this is the civil war this is what happened in the civil war this is what strategy means and i I can't do this i can't handle it because i mean it, it comes back to what you were saying is like how is this teaching me how to live my best life how is this even teaching me how to be a better officer you know like it, it, it's not in my humble opinion. So coming back to well, you, Doug, a, which is the point of this, no. <laughs> the point yeah. of this pod, um, it, 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 like I said, it's heartening to hear that, you know, master chiefs are teaching Marcus Aurelius at butts. Like it, it really is. Um, and it's, it's not terribly surprising. Um, I mean, it's a little bit surprising, but it's not terribly surprising having known the seals and working with the seals. Cause there's some just crazy guys there that are in that, in that stuff. Um, I, I'm wondering, you know, so you, you sent me your thesis, um, on the Iliad and you, right. you talk yeah. a lot about the kind of theory of mind, uh, as it relates to warfare, you know, or the, 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 the ability, um, the intellectual ability coupled with the penchant for physical violence. And I'm wondering, we've, we've, we've kind of dabbled at, you know, why that was attractive to you, but why did you decide to write this paper and why did you decide to make Achilles kind of the centerpiece of, you know, your, your master's thesis? Yeah. Um, I think, I think the, the real question for me, um, with the Iliad, which I, you guys have done a podcast on, right? Or at least part of it. 
I'm, I think we've, I know we've taught books nine and 10. We've taught the embassy uh, and we've taught uh, the night raid. I feel like we might have done a pod on that, but this is how bad my memory is. I know we've taught it oh, several yeah, yeah. times and you might've actually been in yeah. one of those seminars, but I, I don't know yeah. if we've potted on the alien. Well, um, anyway, I mean, the, the, that story, if most, most of the military listeners are at least partially, possibly be familiar with it but basically it's it's the story of achilles from the movie troy you know i mean it's <laughs> if people have, in the military have seen that then um they'll have some sense of what's going on in that book um achilles is a uh very interesting person because uh he is essentially the most important reason or or, or is the essential reason for why the Achaeans are the sort of primitive, uh, co- which is which are sort of a primitive confederation of nation, you know, kingdom nations that exist on the uh, in the area where Greece is now. It's a combined joint task um, force, right? <laughs> um, they uh, they are um, successful for the first nine years of war. In, in pushing the tro- or in pursuing the Trojans and pushing the Trojans all the way to the city of Troy, and of course, then they're stuck outside of the city of Troy uh, for a long time in the tenth year. Um, but in, during those nine years, I mean, a lot Homer points out in, in the book. I mean, that it's almost without question that much of their success is due to Achilles's prowess as a warrior. He's do- he's just completely dominant. He's he's described by Homer as this sort of like he's so beautiful that he's terrifying. You know, he, he, when he when he says beautiful, I think he's referring to his body. You know, as like he's a physically terrifying specimen. And on top of that, you know, he's swift footed, and he he uh, and then there's accounts of him being successful in, in battles, uh, like the battle of the I think it's the Theban battle that takes place where he slays the king, and that's the same battle. Well, anyway, so yeah, he he's a dominant warrior. Yet he gets to the the uh, beginning of, of the Iliad, you know, at the very beginning in book one, where uh, he's dishonored by the the sort of anointed king of the Achaeans, which is uh, um, Agamemnon. Um, and what happens there is you see uh, Achilles, on account of this dishonor, leave the Achaean army entirely. So how could someone whose nature seems to be being dominant in warfare and who's, who is, is, seems to be perfectly suited for this suddenly um, walk away? I mean, uh, didn't, it did, that didn't make sense to me entirely at the beginning. And I wanted to explore uh, uh, what, that, what, what was going on there. And then I wanted to explore why somebody like Achilles in, it would end up coming back after saying he would never fight again for Agamemnon, the guy who dishonored him. I'm wondering what the uh, equivalent would be today for something like what Agamemnon does. Cause he, he basically stel- he steals one of um, Achilles war brides. Uh, and, and the, and it's hard to wrap your head around that, like from a modern audience, but is that like one of your troops, does something terrifically heroic, totally worth a silver star, and you just write yourself up for it anyway. 
Like, would that be, you know, the, the, the kind of similar type of dishonor that Agamemnon commits against Achilles? Maybe, but on a much lower register, I think, in some sense, because the kind of heroes that uh, Homer tells us about, um, they're, they're compared to and they claim to draw their, their lineage from gods. You know, and they're, they're considered to be demigods in, in a lot of ways. And so when you dishonor a demigod, it's a little bit different than dishonoring a, a normal human being, you know. And I think, uh, so I think now in our military and in the world we live in, in the democracy we live in, um, you wouldn't see somebody who got dishonored in the way that you just described in the example you just described. Um, or it would be very odd to see somebody act in the same way as, uh, as Achilles. Yeah. The, uh, rea- the, re- the reaction would not be, uh, yeah. necessarily like reaching for your sword and having Athena stop you. Um, but yeah. I, I, I was, I was just trying to like figure out how I could frame this, you know, initial conflict in a way for, you know, folks that haven't read the Iliad, like the level of what the fuck, um, you know, on Agamemnon's actions. Uh, yeah, I, 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 don't, I think, so are you asking kind of, um, could, could, would we now, um, could we now envision ourselves in a, in a position where we would, we would act like Achilles? or at least feel like Achilles you know how how would how would we feel like Achilles feels you know what would be a similar circumstance where we feel you know what Achilles feels and so that I just you know this this is literally just jumped into my head as like a what what would be the equivalent way of you know if I had you know a marine working for me um who just you know saved a bunch of lives killed a bunch of bad guys and I went man, that was amazing. And everybody kind of knew it. And I went, mm, I kind of want that silver star though. So I'm just going to write myself up for it instead. And just the, the level <laughs> of the level of kind of hate and discontent that that would bring out in, you know, that Marine who was supposedly, who was supposed to get it. But also, I mean, and, and that's interesting to me in the Iliad is that it doesn't necessarily seem like the other generals, the other Greeks are that, upset about Agamemnon, you know, stealing this war bride. So this is probably not the greatest example, but, you know, just an angle to examine it a little bit. Um, But, you know, you you talk a lot about Odysseus and Nestor and their kind of role in the Iliad and this kind of, you know, their their level of cunning and their level of um, kind of manipulation in it with Achilles. So, you know, and, and this is, you, you weave these two ideas of just kind of, um, you know, the beautifulness of Achilles and and the beauty really in his ability for violence, right? The beauty in his ability to kill the enemy, but tempered or at least directed with Odysseus and Nestor. And so does this, does this kind of like come back to your idea of the city and your idea of politics in some ways? Um, well, I, I think, uh, you know, maybe we can start here by saying that it's, uh, it, if it's tied into the, the point I mentioned about um, 
the political life sort of being the highest end for the human being, at least one, one uh, notion of that coming about at the beginning of Aristotle's politics. Um, I don't know if that's the, the highest end of the human being, but at any rate, they, a, polit- a city has to exist or a country has to exist before one can uh, uh, participate in, pol- in po- the politics of that country. Um, and I think, I think uh, you know, it, if you look into the Iliad, you see that the Trojans, the Trojan society is a kingdom um, that is helmed by a sort of head of the household or father, you know, um, in, um, wait, can't believe I forgot this guy's name. Priam. Yeah. Hector's father. Yeah. That's uh, right. Priam, I thought you yeah, were dramatic then, pausing. <laughs> Normally when somebody's yeah. kind of, I'm forgetting a name, I can jump in quicker, but I thought you were dramatic pausing. Yeah. So anyway, Priam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then, uh, and then, you know, the confederation of kingdoms that make up the Achaeans is helmed by kings as well. And I think, I think a lot of those um, folks, uh, you know, people who are a part of that society, um, I mean, a consequence of being a subject or being a king in such an obvious way is, is that you, you don't really have a say in, in politics. You're just, you, you do what you're told uh, as a subject. And I mean, I think that's p- part of the reason a tension that exists in a monarchical society of the type that we're talking about is, is manifest in the example of Achilles where, you know, Achilles is a king, but he's not the highest king in accordance with the conventional agreement that uh, Agamemnon is going to lead the Achaeans. Uh, And then when Agamemnon dishonors him, even though Achilles is a much stronger and better warrior and probably a better, would, would be a better commander possibly could be a better commander of all the Achaeans. Um, uh, you know, he's, he nonetheless, Agamemnon completely dishonors him. I think Achilles thinks, you know, I could destroy you. I don't, I don't have to be a part or subject to you. I mean, you're, you're not my, I have no duties. I'm not bound to you. Maybe, maybe the gods would make it such that I'm bound to you. But I think part of Achilles is, intellectual growth, if you can call it that, when he leaves the army is the recognition that what the gods uh, presumably provide um, or what they, so to speak, what people believe the gods can provide, justice or secure justice on earth, justice in a political society. I think Achilles comes to wonder and to realize whether wonder about whether that's possible at all. Um, so that being the case, uh, I think Odysseus and Nestor see that the kind of growth of the human being that, that is possible in a mo- in monarchical society um, is severely limited and that, that, uh, it needs to be overcome. And the way to do that is it's through Achilles maybe. Well, overcome or like the idea of monarchy overcome or just Agamemnon? 
Well, certainly Agamemnon and Priam, you know, uh, the, tro- the Trojan society too. Yeah. That, there's, that I mean, there, go ahead. No, there's an interesting line. I, I, I kind of always point to this whenever I'm talking about the Iliad and it's in book two and it's when Odysseus has, has grabbed Agamemnon's scepter and is doing what I call XO shit, um, which is basically mm-hmm. like running around and kicking everybody's ass. Um, yeah. And, you know, he says, Odysseus says, lordship for many is no good thing. Let there be one ruler, one king. And right. I think that the tension that I've always seen in the Iliad is that, you know, everybody in the play is either an asshole on the Greek side in some way, or they're a little weak willed, I think on the Trojan side, right? They're a little, yeah. a little, they're not, they're not tough enough. Um, at least for, for war. Uh, and I think that the main tension is something that you just pointed at, which is Achilles can destroy Agamemnon anytime he wants and something holds him back, but he, but Achilles knows. And I think a lot of the Greeks knows that Achilles should be in charge that part of the reason why they've been sitting outside the gates of Troy is because Achilles isn't in charge. And so there's another saying that I kind of point to a lot when I'm talking to the Iliad, which is from the great philosopher, Caesar Milan, um, who is the <laughs> host of the television show, <laughs> the dog whisperer. <laughs> oh, that is a great South Park episode. Which <laughs> oh, really? I need to check this out. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's got some incredible nuggets of wisdom. Uh, and there's a whole backstory to this one, but uh, I just caught it when I was hanging out in Croatia one time, which is nature only knows two positions, dominant and submissive. And I think that this ties into, <laughs> you know, there's the Marine Corps saying, I, mean, I think it's probably a military saying in general, which is lead follower, get the hell out of the way. And so I yeah. think that the, 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 the nature of the tension among the Greeks in the Iliad is that Achilles cannot be submissive. Like he can't do it. It's just, it's impossible. And, Everybody knows, including Agamemnon, that he should be in charge because he is the greatest warrior and you're at war. And so I feel like reading the tone of the poem, that the tone of the poem in the last book when it's Achilles and Priam hanging out and Achilles is, you know, kind of sitting in a throne. Priam is, you know, kind of presenting himself to Achilles, not to Agamemnon, but to Achilles so that, you know, the king whose kingdom is going to fall, you know, the king of Troy is presenting himself to Achilles and Achilles is super comfortable with this. Even Priam's comfortable with this. Priam, you know, and Achilles seem to have a bond at that moment. And I think it's because the Greeks now have one king, one ruler, and it's Achilles. Um, So I, I, you know, I think that 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 is you know, the nature. I mean, it, it's, it's not wild that it's presented that way. I mean, it, it, or the play or the poem is presented that way, right? It's because Achilles hates Agamemnon, but I think Achilles not only hates Agamemnon because of what he does. I think the, the war bride thing is a bit of a ploy that it, it's a symptoms of the disease. And the disease is just that the one King, the one ruler, the dominant should be Achilles and it's not. And so that's, what's causing this, excuse me, various strange events throughout the poem anyway that, that and then and just so everybody knows that's a terrible saint john's thing to say because what you should ask is a question and i just made this incredibly long yeah. statement <laughs> to do and ask the question so but then you can sometimes you can save yourself and go what do you think about that Doug? no well i was going to say i was going to say the the thing that i thought you were pointing out is that maybe um 
uh, it may not be that Achilles is the greatest uh, ruler. I mean, I, I think you can uh, or would be the greatest ruler or king of the... Oh, I agree with you on that. Kind, I'm yeah. specifically just saying for a general in war, like, yeah, he, he needs to be in charge. Yeah, yes. Um, though, I mean, there is an argument to me that I've, I've to be made that I've heard that people wonder, you know, well, if somebody walks away, so to speak, from their duty, um, then you know, that could really cause a kind of not just loss of morale, but uh, dissension among the ranks, you know, that if, if uh, you know, you saw that with Thersites. Oh, I love Thersites. Where you're talking, yeah, <laughs> with uh, yeah. the example that Brian, Brian mentioned a few minutes ago where Odysseus is doing XO shit, as they put it. <laughs> uh, the, the, the person that he hits in, in, uh, with the scepter is this ugly, yeah. sort of deformed, being named Thersites, who basically is making the same claims and complaints about Agamemnon that uh, Achilles made, and Odysseus mm. beats the crap out of him, you know, yeah. uh, for doing that. So yeah. you see dissension in the ranks for sure. Um, and so I'm wondering, I, I guess, back to the question you asked a little while ago about how um, how um, a, a future politics um or whether a future politics that isn't monarchical necessarily follows from the story that comes um out of the iliad and i i i think uh if it doesn't necessarily follow and that that achilles is is supposed to be the single person in charge uh what you would see is uh a little bit more uh of a uh, from from other Achaeans that there would be more sort of protection of, of, of Achilles that you wouldn't want to to uh, see him die in battle and the argument I make in my master's paper is that you know actually I think these guys they recognize that Achilles is an excellent warrior um, but it, it is incapable of, of living any longer in in political society. And so the consequence of that for them is to sort of trigger uh, what Achilles's attachment is to now that he's left uh, a kind of left behind in, in a way, the kind of love of honor and glory that he had uh, at the beginning uh, when he's dishonored and, and replace that with a kind of love for this character named Patroclus, who is his best friend, is almost his brother. I mean, they grew up from, from the outset. And I, so, so Achilles goes from being somebody who is, is, uh, is interested in glory to somebody who's, who's, who is, uh, replaces that with, with love. Odysseus, and, and I argue Odysseus and Nestor, in the, you know, when they send that embassy to, to try and convince Achilles to come back and fight, uh, they're actually trying to discover what Achilles' attachment is to now. And once they find that it's Patroclus, which I argue occurs during that embassy, uh, uh, they take steps to get Patroclus back into the war and killed, which um, ignites a kind of rage 
uh, in Achilles, the likes of which we haven't seen um, in the rest of the story. Um, and that rage is what turns the tide, turns the tables of uh, the momentum of the war in favor of the Achaeans. They push back uh, the Trojans into their city walls and Achilles slays Hector, the chief hero of the Trojans. It gives the Achaeans the ability, uh, I mean, the, the, the sort of strategic decision just to get Patroclus back into the war and to have him killed um, was brought, was, was I argue, a, a product of the mind of Odysseus and Nestor. That then, once the effect of that being fully realized, meaning Achilles changing, you know, taking the war back into uh, Achaean's favor, um, sets up the plot of what, what we learn to be the outcome of the war and the plot of the Iliad, which is that, you know, mind is what is ultimately is necessary for the Achaeans to triumph. You know, they have to create this crazy horse that they all hide in and they give it as a gift after they've told the Trojans, Oh, we're leaving, we're done fighting. And, uh, you know, then uh, all the Achaeans break out of the horse and kill everybody from, you know, kill the Trojans from behind the Trojan walls, which they were unable to breach up until that point. So what I guess what I'm saying is that mind, the mind there of Achilles and Nestor is less concerned about, um, Maybe, maybe less concerned about uh, the the, uh, uh, the kind of government that needs to be built in the future, but more concerned about winning the war now, which is essentially saying they're they're concerned um, with ending sort of familial type monarchy, uh, at least in their general area. I think Achilles is a necessary um, element for that. I don't know. No, I think that's a great analysis. I mean, no, 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 I I think it's a great analysis. I mean, I really enjoyed your paper. I read the whole thing. I mean, it was like 40 pages and, you know, I I don't really spend a lot of time reading master's theses, but you know, this is, (laughs) you know, I, I, I could, I could understand your frame of reference. I could understand, you know, your, your background was kind of layered in there, you know, kind of subtextually, um, your, your interest in politics as well as warfare. Um, so I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I think we're, we're at about, I think we're about an hour at this point. We went way over, Doug, sorry to okay. take up so much of your time, but, um, you know, any, any kind of parting thoughts on, you know, Hey, for somebody that's checking out St. John's, somebody that's in the military, like here's, here's the questions to ask yourself on, you know, how to, how to, how to make this decision, you know, to, to go on and, and try St. John's out. Like what, what are the questions that you might want to ask yourself for the, you know, kind of general direction you might want to give to somebody like that? Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you ask yourself, what is, you know, what what do I consider to be the justice? What do I consider to be happiness for the human being? And you you can't give a a, a fully coherent accounting. You have to be intellectually honest with yourself in the process of doing that. And I think St. John's is a place for 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 you. I mean, another question would be like, what's honor, or what what is the noble, you know, or what is considered to be noble. Um, those kind of questions, if you, if you can't give a full account of why that's good for you, then I think, I think, uh, and, and you're still interested in pursuing those questions. I think St. John's is a place for you. And I think that the, the, 
core, the, the coursework that you do there uh, will show you or lead you to kind of discover for yourself uh, the problems with justice or honor or the noble. And in the course of seeing those pro problems, uh, you're engaged in a kind of intellectual activity um, where, you know, I think you become more prepared to, more open to um, uh, a different answer about what the best life is for the human being. And I think, I think without, without living your life, without approaching those questions or without trying to give an account of for those questions, uh, sort of like as Miss Van Boxel put it to me a long time ago, it's like putting the car before the horse. You know, you're living your life in a way that you don't, and you don't really know why. Um, I think a lot of our problems in life, our, our sadness, our, our unhappiness, comes from trying to force an answer to those questions to fit um, with you, and yet your mind. And your body, in a lot of ways, is is uh, is opposed to it. So a surefire way of trying to to hash that the the difference or the dissonance out that exists between uh, the dissonance that exists between you know say what you think the good life is and what the good life actually is uh, that can be the diff the distance between those two things can be sort of narrowed for you at a school and program like uh, St. John's. I think that's a, that's a great plug, Doug. So thank you, sir. Thank you for being on. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with me and the audience. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on here. Um, and uh, do you mind if yeah, I post, you, would, you, would you mind if I posted your thesis? Is that, is that public? Um, if I put it on uh, the show notes? <laughs> uh, yeah, go, go ahead. Um, that's, that's fine. Yeah. All thank right. you. Thanks no. for having me, Brian. This has been, it's been a real pleasure. I, I, uh, I really like the podcast, so I hope I hope you guys continue uh, doing it uh, so excellently. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I just I, I'm mainly the guy that just hits record, uh, and Lisa and um, Jeff basically do everything else. So <laughs> <laughs> thanks for that. Uh, all right, well, Doug Lensing, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Doug, well, you just graduated, Doug. What's what's the plan? What are you What are you working on? Yeah, next? yeah. Throw Throw your resume um, out here on the pod for our, for our listeners. What are you look What are you looking to do? I'll, yeah, I'll put my social security number and bank account <laughs> passwords. Uh, so the, uh, the, uh, the, I'm going to a political science PhD program uh, at uh, Baylor University in, in Wake, the great. Oh, you just told me this the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wake, yeah Wake, 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 Texas. You're going to be right down I'll the street down from Dallas. You. Yeah. Yeah, you'll I, I, I foresee frequent trips to Dallas. I've been to Waco or I've been to Baylor <laughs> one time. And uh, so, yeah, come on up whenever you feel like it, which will probably be somewhat often. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm look, I, I think uh, I think it'll be good. It's a really good program. Really. I was really uh, I've become really impressed with um, the teachers there and they have interesting students. There aren't any veterans in the program now, though. There is another veteran uh, that's doing a Ph.D program that graduated from St. John's undergrad a couple of years ago. So there seems to be uh, more, more and more people. I don't know if it's, it's the podcast or what 
that's having an effect. <laughs> I don't know if this guy went, but uh, yeah, I don't know if you're changing the world one. Oh yeah, oh it's all me. It, time. It, it's all me, Doug. I'm definitely. It's, no, I mean that that guy. That guy didn't go because of the podcast, and uh, I don't think I went because of the podcast. But I mean, I think I think St. John's is a place where you can go and. Uh, and if you're if you're inclined to pursue these kind of questions more deeply, a PhD program is, is seems to be the logical next step. So, yeah, right on. No, it makes sense to me. All right, Doug, yeah. we, we'll end it there, sir. But thank you again for the time. Really appreciate it, Doug Lensing. Everybody, be be on the lookout down at Baylor University for him to blow, blow your minds <laughs> with his uh, thoughts on the best life. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brian. Yeah.